0: Most of you guys probably didn't realize this, but uh, it was two years ago this Sunday, it was the Sunday before Christmas in 2010, that I came out here and preached for the first time and met you guys for the first time. So in memory of, uh, or in commemoration of, uh, of that, I'm wearing the exact same clothes. And as Don asked, as Don asked, yes, I have washed them since then. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great point, great, uh, great question to ask Don, thank you. We uh, we finished up our study in the book of Mark last week, and so uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having topical um, sermons based on the season. And uh, you know, I was listening to a, a, a very famous preacher um, this past week, give a Christmas message, and he starts off by saying the most difficult thing about being a pastor is coming up with new material for Christmas and Easter every year and never repeating yourself. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, everybody knows these verses that I plan on covering this uh, this Sunday today, um, but what I got to thinking is, you know, just because we know or we're familiar with a passage doesn't mean it's not good to be reminded of it or that there's not still something else that we can learn from. it. I mean, I've read through the book of Mark, I don't know how many times, but uh, for me anyway, man, I, I feel like I really got a lot out of reading that stuff again and, uh, and going through it. So um, we're going to be covering Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow, uh, follow along, you can do that in your Bibles uh, in your lap, or we're going to have them up on the screen too. Um, but we ended our, our series on Mark Uh, on a triumphant note, seeing that Jesus is capable of overcoming every single issue that we face in life. There's nothing too big for him, and there's nothing that's too small for him to care about either. That's what an amazing God he is. But what would you call a person who had the ability to overcome all the problems faced by the world? Now, in in the comic book realm, they call him Clark Kent when he's, when he's incognito, when he's, when he's disguised, uh, pretending to be a regular person, um, but they call him Superman when his real identity is exposed. But even Superman has his limits because he only fixes temporal problems. He doesn't fix anything after this life, uh, and that's something that is a lot more significant. What comes after this life is more significant than what's in this life. In our culture, a name says something about what a person, a parent, is expecting of their child. Uh, My parents named me Tobias because I have no idea. I I don't even know where that name comes from. Um, Although I'm just tempted to blame it on the fact that my parents were down at University of Oregon in Eugene, Washington. And there were all these hippies there at the time and they were naming their kids all kinds of crazy things. And so, who knows? I I don't know. Um, All I know is that uh, throughout my life, my mom has always reminded me that Tobias means uh, a gift from God. And given that, I know that they were questioning their theology by the time I was 14 or 15. Um, <laughs> for us, when we, were naming, uh, when we were naming our son, when we were naming Caleb, um, we bought this book. Uh, a name full of books. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of names. And uh, so we, we just poured through these names. And I remember that we liked the name Caleb because... Of course, it's the name of one of the very few faithful men of Israel in the Old Testament. He and Jacob uh, were willing to trust God over their (laughs) instincts, while all the other men of Israel trusted their gut more than their God. And so uh, we thought, yeah, Caleb's a great name. And and his middle name, Dakota, well, Dakota's just cool. You know, it just just sounds cool. Um, So we gave him this really cool Jewish first name, this... Native American middle name, and of course, he's got a Scottish last name. Uh, so, it, you know, it's amazing that he is as stable as he is, isn't it? I mean,. <laughs> You'd think that somebody would be a little bit confused, but no, he's pretty stable. Uh, in their book, Freakonomics, uh, if you've heard of it, uh, economists Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner uh, point out that one of the first acts of parental power comes in giving the child a name. That's, that's one of the first acts of parental power, and many believe that the name carries a lot of significance, so they, they take time. They, they're really careful about what they, uh, what they choose, what names they choose for their kids. Uh, The case of the Lane brothers um, may be slightly different. Back in 1958, a baby boy was born into the Lane family. Robert, the father, chose to name his first son Winner. How could he fail with a name like Winner Lane? Oh boy, I, I feel sorry for the guy. Um, but he obviously would have, would have heard a lot about that growing up. Uh, but the Lanes had another son several years later, and for whatever reason, Robert decides to name this son Loser. True story. He named his son Loser, Loser Lane. Uh, how tragic to uh, to have that type of expectation or that type of Stigma to carry around with with uh, with him for all of his life, but contrary to all expectations, Loser Lane turned out to be a very successful person. He graduated from college and later became a sergeant with the New York Police Department. And uh, as such, I am sure that nobody calls him Loser now, at least not to his face. They call him Lou. Um, that's what they that's what they call him. But what about the other brother? What about winner Lane? The only thing that's remarkable about him, now that he's in his mid-40s, is the length of his criminal record. Nearly three dozen arrests for burglary, domestic violence, trespassing, resisting arrest, etc., etc. Three dozen arrests. Well, the Hebrews believed that your name should say something about who you were and what your what your nature was, and so parents... Uh, in Hebrew culture, would take great care to give their children names that would correspond to the children's identity. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Hosea, uh, th- this is maybe more brutal than being named Loser Lane. Uh, you know that the Lord gives um, gives the children that Hosea has with Gomer uh, three names, th- three name, one well, name for each one, which represents. Uh, or speaks to the unfaithfulness of Israel. He wanted to tell Israel exactly how he felt about their unfaithfulness, exactly how he felt about their turning away from him, their idolatry. And so literally translated, God tells Hosea to name his children planted by God, no more mercy, and not my people. Oh, those are, those are harsh names. But that was how God was communicating his message to the, to the Israel people. To the Israelite people. So with the Hebrew view of names in mind, what would you call the one human in all of history who was able to come any and every difficulty that we face? Superman might work for a comic book, but it doesn't say anything about what he can do. And as we've seen, all he fixed was temporary stuff. So let's first take a look at what this unique person who was to come into the world was going to do what his expectations were because there were some high 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 expectations that get set in this passage. We start with Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 where we read the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them. See the truth is that every single one of us every person in history, has been born into a world of spiritual darkness. Without physical light, people can't see anything. They're blind. If you've ever been in like a cave where they, they turn the lights off, you know, you're going through a, a tour in a cave and they turn the lights off, and man, you can't see anything because there is no light. Without light, people are blind. And without spiritual light, there is spiritual darkness, spiritual blindness. And so just over 2,000 years ago, Those who had remained faithful to God were surrounded by this despair and surrounded by this darkness. And the nation of Israel had been occupied by the Roman Empire. Didn't look good for the people of Israel. And the means by which order was preserved under the Roman Empire was by brute force. It was comply or die, basically. And those aren't two very good options. Not a lot of options. Not a lot of selections. The people were forced to live in utter poverty because the taxation system of the Roman Empire was overly burdensome. Now add to that the fact that God had been silent for 400 years. He hadn't spoken to Israel in 400 years. And now you start to understand why spiritual darkness would have appeared to have been winning the day. And so a lot of people... In the land had grown cynical, hardened, and a few had remained faithful to God. Now as you survey the landscape of our world today, it's really not that different. Nothing is new under the sun. Solomon was right, nothing is new under the sun. It's not all that different today. You know, yeah, we're we're more modern. You know, of course, no cell phones back then, believe it or not, I don't know how they did it. How'd they get from one place to another without GPS? I don't know. Um, but even with our, you know, all of our modern gadgets, man, it, it's, it's darkness out there. There's, there's spiritual darkness everywhere you look. And a lot of people, a lot of people, it's, it's increasing, are growing cynical, more and more cynical about God, about faith, about religion, about the Bible, about Jesus, all of these things. People are growing more and more cynical because we're surrounded by darkness. It's everywhere you look. Few are remaining faithful, and if you aren't looking in the right places, it might seem like darkness is prevailing. It might seem like darkness is winning the day, but know this, darkness on its own has no power. It has nothing. It has no power at all. All the darkness in the entire universe doesn't have the power to extinguish the light of a single candle. But the light has the power to overcome and wipe out the darkness. Darkness can't overcome light. Light can only overcome darkness. And Isaiah tells us that this one, this Messiah, who was to come would be like a great light who would shine on those who live in a dark land. That's us. That's us. That's humanity. God's light shows us what is real. God's light shows us what is true. And his light has come into the darkness of the world, and it has overcome the darkness. The Apostle John said this, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, because the light is in them. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let's continue, verse 3. Going on to uh, continuing to describe the Messiah. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Talking about the kingdom that was to come. The kingdom that Jesus came to establish. He's also talking about the nation of Israel. But this gladness that he refers to can be applied to anyone who will receive this one that Isaiah is talking about. There's rejoicing because there's victory. There's victory. See, there's this war going on, this invisible war, this spiritual war, and victory was coming. The Messiah would come and establish his kingdom, and he would establish that victory for us because on our own, on our own, humanity has no light with which the darkness can be confronted and on our own, humanity has no light with which the darkness can be overcome. So why will there be rejoicing? Isaiah tells us in the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire." This past week, I was watching a video called The Quest for God, and it's really a study of, of world religions, and I was reminded of what mankind has done throughout the ages to try and appease or, or to please uh, the god or, or the gods of their respective religions. The overarching theme of every major world religion, aside from Christianity, unless you're in the wrong Christian circles, is work. Work. Work, work, work. That's what every uh, major world religion is all about. And in this video, they talked about how uh, some of these Hindus, uh, you know, they're trying to break this karmic cycle. And so what they'll do is some of them, if if they're really, really, really into it, um, you know, really trying to, to be dedicated and devoted, they will hold their hands above their head, clasped together, not just for a couple hours, and not even just for a couple days, they will do that for years on end so that it becomes impossible for them to bring their arms down. And they're doing this to try and please God. What, I, just, I just saw that and I thought, what a weird thing to do. Why would you think that that would please God? Because there's discomfort. For them, You know, if, if you're in discomfort, you're working. And I thought, wow, that is, that's really, really, really brutal. All to try and earn their salvation, which is really no salvation at all. It's, it's nothingness. That's what they're striving toward. They're, they're striving to end the karmic cycles so they won't be reincarnated again. It'll be all over into nothingness. Why would you strive for nothingness? The Mayans, who not only can't calculate the end of the world to save their lives, I'm kidding, um, they, they, had, uh, they had their own religion as well. They had a religion that required blood lots of blood. I mean, lots of blood by anyone who wanted to please the gods. And the more painful the individual's bleeding out was, uh, the happier the gods would be because the more valuable that blood would be. And so what they did is they came up with these ways, these methods of making their bleeding as unbelievably painful as they possibly could. There are ancient artifacts uh, which show that people would do things like sticking a spear through their tongue. I mean, I, I'm not just talking about a little spear. I'm talking about a big spear. And they would bleed and bleed. And, and you know they do all kinds of other things. Like if you've seen uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, the guy who reaches into people's heart, uh, reaches in and grabs their heart so they can see it You know, right before they die. They really did that in this, in this Mayan religion. They, they really did that. Um, one, of the, one of the images on an ancient artifact is of somebody with a long branch of thorns, and they're just pulling it through their tongue. If you can imagine. I mean, it's grotesque, and it makes us cringe when we even hear about it, but this is what people were doing to try and get straight with God or the gods that they believed in. And when I watched this, I was, I was just gruesomely reminded that all of these world religions... Are so burdensome on the individual. They're all about humanity taking things into their own hands, taking matters into their own hands, reaching up to God. But Isaiah tells us that God would reach down to humanity. There's a burden that the Messiah would require. But he tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because he isn't satisfied by physical efforts. He isn't satisfied by rites and rituals or impure blood. He's not satisfied by any of that stuff. Rather, he's satisfied only by our faith and commitment to him. That's the only thing that satisfies him. That's why Isaiah says that every boot and every cloak will be fuel for the fire. Those things are symbolic of human effort. It's all nothing. It's, it's here today, it's, it's gone tomorrow. It's worth nothing. It can't stand the test. It can't stand the test of the refiner's fire. In our culture, maybe we'd say that God is going to take the checklists that we measure ourselves by and toss them into the fireplace. It's human effort, checklists, anything short of pure, devout faith, it's all for nothing. Jesus was once asked, Uh, What should we be doing so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you should be believing in the one whom he sent. That you should be believing in the one whom he sent. That's from John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. If only every person who was busy, wasting time, trying to earn their way to heaven by being as good as they can possibly be, could just see that their efforts are all in vain. Their efforts are completely wasted if they only knew that when God surveyed the earth, he already declared that there is not one who was righteous. Not even one. But the Messiah would bring hope because the Messiah would bring light into the darkness. The Messiah would bring a reason to rejoice in him. The Messiah would remove these heavy burdens that people have taken on themselves for years and years and centuries and centuries in efforts to please God. What would you call someone who is able to remove these burdens? Give us every reason in the world to rejoice. Now before we continue, I, I, I just I want to remind, um, remind us that you know, that's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. We're celebrating the light coming into the darkness. We're celebrating the fact that we don't have these heavy burdens we don't have to spill our own blood to please God. We don't have to keep our hands up in the air for years until they get stuck there to please God. We don't have to you know, think, okay, I'm, just gonna, I'm hoping for nothingness because it'll be better than this life, which is basically what it all boils down to for all these religions. We're celebrating the defeat of darkness, the pronouncement of the worthlessness and the futility of human efforts toward righteousness. We couldn't get there on our own, And so God promised to send us his only son, the Messiah, to be our righteousness and to stand between us and God as a mediator. Christmas is about remembering that without this mediator, without the Messiah, we would all be totally lost and completely hopeless. So what would you call this Messiah? Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 tells us that an angel told Joseph regarding Mary, his wife to be, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So every time, uh, so when we see the word Jesus, we should remember that the, the name Jesus or, or Yeshua actually means God saves. There's an expectation. There's an expectation of what was to come. Uh, And that's why Jesus was given the name that he was given. And the angel goes on to remind Joseph that they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the words, the names that we use for Jesus, the things that he gets called, tell us a lot about him, about his nature, about his expectations. So God doesn't leave us guessing about what people will call Jesus. He tells us through Isaiah in verses 6 and 7. Now, the first thing I I want us to to notice about all of this is that it starts with the word for, which is another way of translating, you know, because. Because or for, basically the same thing. It ties the previous verses uh, to this passage, telling us that the reason that the people rejoice and the reason that human effort will be as worthless as fuel for a fire is because of what's to come, because this child will be born. So I want to remind everyone here that um, one commentator points out something that I thought was just amazing. I I had never seen it this way. There's no punctuation in Hebrew. No commas. And so when you see that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, we need to understand that these words were all just boom, 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 boom. No commas. No no separation between them. So it's just as uh, grammatically correct to hyphenate these words as it is to put commas in between them, but it might be more theologically correct to take out the commas and to put hyphens between all these words because it's all one title. They all fit together. All of these names, all of these expectations, they all fit together. So let's take a, a few minutes to take a look at what he is going to be called. The first thing that he's called is Wonderful Counselor. Now when do you go to a counselor? You don't go to a counselor when life is great and you're doing fine and, you know, everything's hunky-dory. You go to a counselor when there's something wrong. You go to a counselor when maybe you've messed up or you can't get quite on the right track. You go to a counselor when you've tried to straighten things out on your own and you realize, man, you're like on a treadmill. You're not going anywhere. You go to a counselor when you're in over your head and you realize, I need help from somebody else. A counselor is someone who you put into a position of advising you. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. He said, through pride comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. The problem is that all counsel is not created equal. There's good counsel and there's bad counsel. Uh, I was reading an article this past week about the rate of suicide in the military right now. It's at an all-time high. It's at an all-time high. What they're seeing is that uh, these soldiers are going to their counselors uh, seeking help for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, it, you know, They're not able to sleep. They're not able to focus. They, they're you know hearing things, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're being put on these pharmaceutical cocktails of 10 to 15 medications, uh, not only not one of which can address Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but these medications weren't designed to be used with other drugs. And so these guys are going crazy. Uh, You know, post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, is the most common reason that our soldiers are seeking counsel in the first place. And what they're being given is bad counsel. They're being given bad counsel because it's not only not helping these soldiers who are seeking counsel, but it's making their situation exponentially worse, which is why they're committing suicide, which is why they're coming back here and they are having extreme chronic depression because of these medications. Some of them can change a person so that they will never be the same again. And a lot of these guys were complaining, you know, on, on this and this medication, man, I just became a zombie. Like I, I didn't think, I just did. Man, it's, it's bad, bad counsel. And so the difference between good counsel and bad counsel is often related to the degree of care that the counselor has for the person seeking counsel. If the counselor views the person seeking counsel as just another number, somebody to get in and out the door, or maybe they're seeing him as an object, you know, like, a, like kind of a, a test, uh, an experiment, a guinea pig, you know, it's a virtual guarantee that their counsel won't be personalized it won't be thought out it won't be you know for for the best in, in the best interests of the person necessarily the best chance at receiving good counsel will come from people who know us and who love us and accept us anyway they listen to us they understand our situation maybe they can sympathize with our situation they understand our weaknesses see any counselor worth anything, we'll understand that the most important factor in a counseling relationship is trust. If somebody doesn't trust you, there, there's no counseling relationship. That's just the way it works. That's just. It, it's not going to happen. If we don't trust a counselor, of course we're not going to take what they say to us, what they advise us to do, to heart. Because we won't, we won't have any idea, you know, do they have my best interest in mind? Do they have something else in mind? I don't know this person. They don't know me. Why should I listen to them? That's basically the way it works. But Jesus would be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that there is a humongous difference between good and wonderful. When something's good, uh, you know, maybe it, it does the job, it's, it's satisfactory, it, it, it satisfies us. But when something is wonderful, I think there's an implication there that it is beyond satisfying. The amazing news here is that even in times when we aren't sure whom we can count on or whom we can trust, who we can turn to, we can turn to Jesus. He's more than a good counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. And he can not only impart wisdom to us, but he can do what no other counselor in the universe can do. He alone, he alone can give us the strength and the power to overcome the obstacles in our path in accordance with his will, of course. Now, for the person who doesn't know Jesus, they will have no idea what I am even talking about. I mean, if I were, if I were to tell you, you know, there, there's this restaurant in, in Las Vegas that has wonderful food, now, you might know that I think it's wonderful, but will you really know that it's wonderful for yourself? You won't. You'll, you'll say, okay, well, you know, Toby thinks their food is, is really, really good, but I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe I'd like it, maybe I wouldn't. And likewise, if a person hasn't come to Jesus, they might understand that he's supposed to be wonderful, but there's no way for them to personally know how wonderful he truly is. Jesus is our wonderful counselor or advisor, Counselor, advisor, same, same Hebrew word. The President of the United States is surrounded by people we would refer to as his advisors or, or, his, or his counselors, right? Uh, these are the people who no one understands things better uh, than he does as our President. He, he, he just can't be an expert in every field, economics, domestic policy, foreign policy, you know, all those things. So he has a board of advisors. And this is a role that Jesus wants to fill in our lives as well. And it's something that he can do better than anybody else. He's trustworthy, he's wise, and most importantly, he loves us. He loves us enough that we can be sure that he's looking out for our best interests, whether we fully understand that or not. And that's why Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. That he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. That's what a counselor is supposed to do. And that's what Jesus wants to do. The second title for Jesus is Mighty God. In my opinion, only a mighty God would have the credentials to be a wonderful counselor. This title gives us an expectation of the type of power that he would have the, the, this power that's beyond our own type of power, this power that's beyond even our comprehension, and this child who would be born unto us, this child who would be born unto us, would be more than just an ordinary child. He would be divine. He would be God in human flesh. And one of the biggest misunderstandings that people who, who really don't know Jesus have about Jesus is that he was just kind of weak, that he was wimpy. Um, you know, he was gentle, you know, he, he taught us to turn the other cheek, uh, you know, he didn't resist when the Romans came and arrested him, he didn't resist or even try to resist when they crucified him, and, and, and from the world's perspective, they say, why not? If he could, why didn't he? And we see that, by the way, in the Bible. That's what people were saying. If he can, if he's able to do all these things, why doesn't he bring himself down from the cross? Well, he could have. He could have. Jesus was not and is not weak. He was humble, but Isaiah is telling us that he was mighty. He was a mighty God. John tells us in the book of Revelation about these ten kings who will stand against Jesus. And he writes, these will wage war against the Lamb, against Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That's from Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. The evil powers of this world might be might look like they're having a heyday right now, but they know, and we know, that their time is limited. Jesus has already won the victory against evil, so it's a guarantee. It's as good as done. And he still proves himself to be the mighty God even to this very day, giving us the means by which we can obtain victory over sin and unrighteousness in our own lives even to this day. Even to this day. The psalmist wrote, Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That doesn't sound like somebody who's wimpy to me. Jesus is our mighty God. The third title that he's given is Eternal Father. Now, some would have us believe that this is an instance of Jesus being referred to as the Father, as in the first person of the Trinity. Uh, If you've ever heard of the Jesus-only movement... Uh, or the Oneness Pentecostal movement. Uh, they believe that God is one person who manifests himself in three different ways. And manifests is one of those key words that you want to look for. Uh, some people who are uh, who, who are part of this movement that you may have heard of, T.D. Jakes. He's part of this cult. Um, so if, that, that's, that's the Jesus-only movement. And they use this verse to support the idea that Jesus and the Father are the same person, because obviously this is talking about Jesus, and here he's being called the Father, so their reasoning is, oh, see, Jesus is the Father. However, the Hebrew words here have to be seen as something of a figure of speech, but keep in mind that every instance of figurative speech is trying to communicate a literal truth. So the Hebrew words here can also be translated as Father of Eternity, and it's just as true. In Hebrew culture, to be the father of something meant that you created it and you own it outright. It is all yours. You are the father of fill in the blank. So who else could be said to have created eternity? Who else can be said to own eternity but God himself? That's all Isaiah is saying here. Because he created eternity, he owns eternity. Because he owns eternity, he knows it all. He knows it all. There isn't a single aspect of existence that he isn't fully and completely aware of. Because it's his. We can't hide anything from him. People try all the time. But we can't hide anything from him because he sees it all. Because it all belongs to him. But he's also like a father in the sense that he cares for us. He cares for us. He provides for us. He goes to battle for us. He counsels us as an earthly father is intended to do with his children. There's an instinctive desire that we men have to do all these types of things for our children. And unfortunately, it's an instinctive desire that too many men in our day and age neglect. Uh, We have children growing up in broken homes, and those children have no idea what it's like to have a father much less to have a father who loves, protects, provides for, and guides his children. How important is a father? In 2011, children who lived apart from their father were almost four times more likely to be living in poverty. Children who are raised without a father have been shown to be significantly, exponentially more aggressive in their behavior. More than half of the population of prison inmates in our country are guys who were raised without a father. Girls who are raised without a father are a lot more likely to be promiscuous in their behavior. Studies have revealed that atheists, this is a good one, atheists tend to have come from a strained or broken relationship with their father. They're a lot more likely, atheists are, to come from a strained relationship with their their father. See, we all have this instinctive need for a father and a lot of people have a difficult time relating to God because they don't know from their own life experience what it means to have a good father. But Jesus is the everlasting father, the eternal father. You see, even the best of earthly fathers have faults. Caleb, ignore that part. I'm kidding. Even the best earthly fathers have faults, shortcomings, weaknesses, and limitations. And there comes a time when they realize it, and there comes a time when their kids realize it too. Even the best earthly father will eventually disappoint in some way or another. But our eternal father, Jesus... He has no weaknesses. He has no flaws. And because he's eternal, we can experience his fatherly mercy, his sacrificial love, and his wise counsel even to this day. He is the father that we all crave. He's the father that we all instinctively know that we need. Finally, his name is called Prince of Peace. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace. You see, because we were born into a broken, sinful, evil world, a dark world, we were all born as enemies of God. That doesn't feel too good. I know that, that that goes totally counterculture where people like to call everybody children of God. No, Ephesians chapter 2 says we were all born children of wrath. We were all born children of wrath. Except for Jesus. We were God's enemies. So we were under his wrath. We opposed God. We declared war on God with our actions, with our thoughts, and with our efforts to be righteous without even relying on him. But Paul's saying that through our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. Because of our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. There's no other way. Without Jesus, we would still be at war with God. And for those who haven't surrendered their lives to God, they are still at war with God. They are still at war. Children of wrath, to be at peace, which is something that's kind of difficult for us to fully understand, it's very difficult for the world to fully understand, because we've never known peace in our world. There's never been peace. There's always been strife, there's always been conflict, there's always been chaos, unresolved tension. But to be at peace implies the absence of conflict or strife. It means to be free of tension or anxiety. It means that even when we are surrounded by chaos or by chaotic circumstances, the waters are still where we're sailing because we know who's in control. We know that he's in control because he owns it all. Because he's the mighty God. See, the longer we live, the more, I think, You know, we come to a realization that there are not a whole lot of things in this life that we really have control over. We can become victims of circumstance at any given moment, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It can happen at any minute. But Jesus not only gives us peace with God, but he gives us peace within ourselves when we're in the midst of circumstances that are beyond our control. You know, we're probably all familiar with what the angels said to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus is the one, he's the only one who brings peace because faith in Jesus is the one and only thing that pleases God. That's what makes God pleased with a person. He's the Prince of Peace who gives us peace the peace that surpasses all understanding. So as Christmas approaches, we remember that Jesus is all of these things. This is all one. This isn't just like little pieces of the puzzle. This is all one piece. And that without him, we remember, that without him, we would still be lost in darkness. For every person who has ever followed Jesus, they know. They know that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, eternal Father, and Prince of Peace, who is bigger and stronger and able to overcome the issues that we face in life. But the real question this Christmas and every uh, Christmas is still what will you do with Jesus? Will you surrender your life to Him? Or if you already have, will you surrender more of your life to Him than you ever have before? What I've found is that the more a person surrenders, to Jesus, the more deeply and the more clearly we see that these names fit him truly and accurately. So, given Isaiah's description of Jesus, we see that there are some lofty expectations for who Jesus would be and what he would do. And Jesus was born just as we were promised, so that he could not only meet these expectations, but he could exceed it we can't even wrap our minds around a name that would truly, truly fit him. There is nobody else in all of history who compares to him, and there's nobody else who is deserving of these names. Remember this, Jesus is not just the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. He is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our Eternal Father, and our Prince of Peace. Jesus truly is a reason to rejoice. He's the reason for this season. And he is the name above all names. And that's what we celebrate on Christmas. The name above all names becoming like one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you're a God who's merciful. We know that you looked down and you surveyed the world and you said, not one of you can compare to me. Not one of you is righteous. And you didn't just do nothing about it. But out of your great love for us, you sent your son. And God, I just pray that as we enter the Christmas season and we see how stressed out people are getting and how busy we can become, how caught up in all of the things that we can get. Lord, help us to keep focused. Help us to keep in mind what this is really all about. That it's not about getting presents and it's, yeah. not, about, it's not even about giving presents. Tell it's about you and what you did for us. You so we thank you for that. We thank you that you saved us. We thank you that you sent your son. And we thank you that he didn't spare any pain that there was no pain that he tried to avoid, even the discomfort of being in a cold manger. Lord, we thank you that he can understand and sympathize with our weaknesses. And we thank you
1: that he's able to be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our eternal Father, and our Prince of
0: Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. Sweet and beautiful, and I will stay here waiting for beautiful. Beautiful, you're beautiful, your love is wild and bountiful. Yes, all I.